0: Before we pick up in the book of Deuteronomy uh, tonight, I wanted to just touch on a few announcements for next weekend. Uh, Next weekend is Easter weekend. If you would like to join us for our Good Friday service, we're going to do a candlelit service at 8 p.m. right here, Friday night, Uh, and then uh, we'll have our usual service time Sunday morning for Easter uh, at 9 a.m. We will not be having our Through the Bible service next Sunday as it is Easter Um, but we will resume the following week on the 8th of April. Tonight we're going to pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 15. And it's worth recalling as we get into the book tonight what exactly the setting is in Deuteronomy, and there's really uh, a horizon in the book of Deuteronomy, and there's two things on that horizon. One is the imminent death of Moses, the leader of Israel. This is his final address to the people of Israel. Here's Moses who for 40 years has faithfully led Israel despite their rebellion. Uh, who has told them of the things that are to come, who was the mediator of the covenant and laid it all in front of them. But now they're going to enter into the land without them. And Moses' greatest desire is that they would be faithful to the covenant so that they would continue to enjoy the promises of God. In fact, that's the main point of this sermon in the book of Deuteronomy, is to choose to follow and keep the covenant and therefore live long and well in the land. Now, in terms of structure, many have suggested that the way that the content is organized in the book of Deuteronomy um, follows the Decalogue, or the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments, which occur a little bit earlier in the book. If you've been paying attention, where we pick up in chapter 15, we're moving into the third commandment, to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And one of the things we need to keep in mind when we consider the Sabbath uh, is that it's more than just a day a week, that the Sabbath is a principle that involves an entire calendar of high and holy days, some of which we'll review tonight, Uh, that it involves a seventh year leaving the land fallow and rest, and so there's a Sabbath year, an annual uh, every seventh um, entire year where the ground lays fallow. And there's even a 7th, 7th, 2-year period, so every 49th and 50 years would be 2 years back-to-back, culminating in the 50th year with the year of Jubilee, which would be a um, removal and an ending of all debts and a restoring of land to anyone who, within that 50-year period, may have gotten into such dire straits economically that they actually had to sell their inheritance um, to pay their debts. But the other thing we need to keep in mind about the Sabbath is that it's not solely, maybe even not primarily, about the vertical relationship between God and Israel. The emphasis is they are to keep the Sabbath holy because of the Lord their God, uh, but the practical nature of the Sabbath focuses on economic principles. It focuses on how we treat other people, especially the poor, the destitute, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. So as we'll see tonight, although the Sabbath looms in the background of everything we're going to talk about here in chapter 15, there is an (coughs) economic sensibility that underlies the whole thing that really has to do with caring for other people, especially those who are not as well off. And so, in chapter 15, verse 1, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. Now, earlier in the book of Exodus, it talks about um, releasing the land. And so, it uses the same word for release here, but the idea there is letting the land lay fallow. Here, in Deuteronomy, he extends that principle from giving the land rest to putting debts to rest. Look at verse 2. This is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Now, this may mean one of a couple of things. Just a a clear and cursory reading of these verses, it sounds like every seven years, the debts are just removed. The reason why scholars think that's probably not the case is because that's how the year of Jubilee worked every 50 years. And so instead here, there's one of two options. Either it's that they don't take any payments on the seventh year. In fact, that makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because if they're to leave the ground fallow for seven years, or on the seventh year, then they obviously can't work the land and continue to make payments towards a particular debt. Another possibility that many scholars suggest is that the idea here of releasing what he has lent to his neighbor has to do uh, with the collateral on a loan. You see, in Israel, if you took out a loan, you would present something, sometimes it was a piece of land, if it was a small loan, it might just be a a garment, Uh, it may even be your entire life, but you would present that as collateral and it would be held onto by the creditor until the debt was repaid. And so it may be here that what's returned is that collateral. That if they uh, make it to seven years of debt, that the collateral is returned whether the loan is finished paying or not. One of the reasons why I think that suggestion is right on is because that idea of collateral becomes significant to the later writings of scripture. Proverbs has much to say about taking somebody's only coat As collateral and leaving them every night cold. And so it says that the code is to be returned nightly so that they don't sleep cold. Uh, The prophets criticize Israel for um, taking advantage of the collateral that was used in these loans. But either way, what we see here is that even where there was economic principles involved, even where there was a relationship of debt, the creditors were still to be concerned about the debtor, not merely thinking about the profit that they can make off of them, um, but have their best interest in mind. And so notice verse 3, Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. And so a distinction is made here between um, internal national debt and economics and external uh, issues of trade, verse 4, but there will be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And so Moses makes an incredibly idealistic statement. Uh, in fact, we, we have to notice what he says uh, just a few verses later. Notice what he says in verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Which is it? He starts by saying, there will be no poor among you, and then a few verses later he says, the land will never be without the poor. Okay? Clearly, both the author and the original audience would have caught the tension here. Okay? So this is not some sort of editorial contradiction in close quarters, uh, but the emphasis is one of idealism and realism, okay? What's stated for us in verse four is an aspiration. This is where they are supposed to seek after. This is where their heart and motivation is. Um, But there is still a realism in recognizing that ideals are not enough for legislation, that you have to legislate for where life is, not just where it should be. It reminds me of the words of Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King said that laws cannot change the heart, but they can restrain the heartless. And I've found that to be a tremendously helpful principle when we consider the politics of our own time and the issues of our own day. Uh, When we recognize that people have problems, that uh, sin runs deep in human nature, uh, we always should recognize the fact that the law can't change hearts. That that reality can't be limited uh, by legislation, but it can constrain the possibilities, bring about consequence to those behaviors, and so legislation matters. In the same way here, the aspiration of Israel is to be towards there being no poor in the land, raising up everybody out of poverty, but as we'll see, Moses recognizes that 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 goal uh, won't necessarily be achieved, and so he legislates accordingly. Now it's worth pointing out this verse in in Deuteronomy 15.4, there will be no poor among you, uh, is a idea that Luke uses to describe the early church. You see, one of the difficulties we often have in applying the Old Testament, especially a book like Deuteronomy, As New Testament Christians, is what is the relationship between the laws of Israel given by Moses and the church of Jesus Christ? And clearly, there are very strong differences. Whereas Israel was a nation, a particular people with a particular land, uh, the church is international, it stems across boundaries, it doesn't form its own government but exists in the midst of and spread throughout the world. Um, In the same way, the Old Testament law involves at least some things that, although they are significant in what they typify or what they picture, have been so completely fulfilled in what Jesus Christ has done... They are no longer applicable to us, like the kosher laws, for example. You may remember in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, what goes into a man doesn't make him clean, but what comes out of his heart. And Mark adds an aside, and he says, in doing this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Okay? But it is worth noticing that we can't just rip out the book of Deuteronomy and say it has no significance for the church today. And the reason I say so is because the New Testament authors draw heavily from the book of Deuteronomy in their own perspective for Christian behavior. So notice Luke's commentary here on the early church in the book of Acts chapter 4. The church in Jerusalem following the uh, festival of Pentecost was in a a unique circumstance. Remember that the people who come to hear Peter's message on the day of Pentecost and hear in their own language people being praised, uh, God being praised in their own language, remember that those people live all over the Roman Empire. They're Jewish in descent and they've come, as we'll see tonight, required come to Pentecost, uh, like all Jews were required to attend, all male Jews, Um, and while they were there, they hear this message about the fact that the Messiah has come, and it seems that many of them, instead of immediately going back to their nations of origins, many of them settle right down in Jerusalem which means effectively you have a church that's partially made up of residents in Jerusalem and a large portion made up of residents from all over the world. That is an economic issue. And so what the church began to do was to sell excess property they had and use the profits of that excess property to support the church that was effectively homeless living in the midst And so uh, this idea and these principles are mentioned a handful of times in the first eight chapters of Acts. Here in chapter 4, the one I want to draw your attention to is at the very end of the chapter in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Do you hear the language Luke uses there to describe the situation in the early church? There was no poor among them. His Greek here is actually a word-for-word quotation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. He sees not only that the church is behaving like Israel was idealistically to behave in the book of Deuteronomy, but also that that's the way it should be. That there's some sort of significant relationship between having a relationship with Lord God Jehovah or Jesus Christ and <coughs> are taking care of the material needs of the poor, especially in our midst, especially like we saw in Deuteronomy 15 of our brothers and sisters. And so, although it's true, uh, we may not be in the same national or legislative significant um, context that Israel was in chapter 15, but the principle here of how we treat, especially other Christians, should be significant. I'll give you just one illustration. Paul, in the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, criticizes the Corinthian church for taking one another to to court, to sue one another when they get embroiled in some sort of economic conflict. He says that it's inappropriate. He says that it's out of line. He says that it defames the witness of Christians and it'd be better if they take the loss than publicly go to court before a watching world. Clearly, his ideas he's drawing here have co- correlations with what we're reading about in Deuteronomy and how we should t- treat one another. If you're interested, we actually talked about this extensively this morning, looking at Second Corinthians chapter 9, and you can find the message online. But let's jump back into verse 5. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments that I command you today. You see, there's the caveat. There will be no poor among you if only you would listen and obey. Verse 6. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. And so what God promises here is if they take care of the poor internally within their own national economy, that internationally they won't be put in a place of national debt owing to other nations, that they won't be under the boot of creditor nations around them. This, by the way, is one of the things that the prophets later on threaten, that because they have taken away the houses of the widow Their houses will be taken away by another nation. Um, And so the ideal here, the plan was one of um, broad prosperity for Israel. Because remember, Israel was to be a testimony of the goodness of God. And part of that testimony is in the character of his law. Verse 7, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns, within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever may be. Now, one of the things I want you to notice in these verses tonight is all of the pronouns. Let me read it again and listen to how this is emphasized. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. You see how all of the yours prepare you for that last one? Here, the concern is not for the poor, but your poor. The difference between those two ideas is significant, okay? One of the things that poverty often does is isolate and alienate. It otherizes people. They become the poor. They become an issue. They become a problem. But what's emphasized here is the fact that we're talking about family. That's why the word brother is used over and over. In fact... um, it's used four times in these handful of verses right here. Uh, It's concentrated intentionally. And so not only is there an emphasis on the fact that poverty is a communal problem, your poor, uh, but it's also a family uh, problem, your brothers, your sisters, And so it says here that they are to open their hands and lend them sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now, I also think it's significant here that it's not a handout that is offered, but a loan. Now, we find out in other places this is not not to be a loan at interest. Okay, There's to be no usury. They're not to make a profit on the debt of the poor. They are to freely help them get out of it. And notice here it says that they're to be open handed. The other thing we'll notice in this passage, if you pay attention, is there's a lot of body metaphor. They're to be open handed, they're not to close their hearts, although it's hidden in the Hebrew behind the English. They're to have a good eye and not an evil eye against their neighbor. It sees generosity here as involving not merely actions that's the hands, open and closed hands but also attitudes, that's the heart. There's a mode of being towards need here that the Bible warns us against a hard heartedness, a closed offedness, almost a reservedness that keeps distance from other people's problems. Instead, there's to be an emotional connection, an open heartedness to need. Notice what it says in verse 9 take care lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, hmm, the seven year, the year of release is near and you eye, uh, your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Do you get the idea here? Remember, in the seventh year, that's when the whole loan falls apart. So, say it's six years and nine months, and your neighbor comes to you and says, hey, could you lend me? And you go, there's no way he's going to pay me back in three months. It's out of my economic interest to make this loan, so I'm going to just refuse. It says, no, 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 no. No, before your own interests, you need to consider their interests, and, uh, and notice what it says here. If you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin... Now, I think that's really significant because oftentimes when we talk about taking care of the material needs of the material poor, we often use the word charity. Charity speaks of going above and beyond what's necessary. It's doing more than is required of you. The Old Testament doesn't use the word charity in that way. It speaks instead of justice. It says here to not help your brother... And for him to cry out against you because of his need is sin. You've fallen short of what you owe your neighbor. And that idea is maintained throughout the Old Testament. Uh, When we get to talking about the elders uh, in a few chapters, we'll look at the person of Job. And there's a passage where Job presents himself as kind of the ideal Jewish citizen. And we'll notice as he does, one of the things that he says that he has done right is he has not failed to break the teeth of the oppressor. He has not failed to feed the widow and the hungry. Okay, Righteousness as a category in the Old Testament involves these things. It's not frosting on the top. It's not charity going above and beyond what people deserve, the Bible actually sees us as owing to those in need that we take care of those needs. Paul updates this for us in the book of Romans chapter 12 when he says, owe no one anything except love, right? He takes this idea of debt and he says, don't get yourself into debt, but you do owe them putting themselves, thinking in themselves is just important as you taking care or considering their needs as much as your own. And so verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Notice two things here. One, it says here that it's not just the action, but also the heart. Giving grudgingly, Mumbling under your breath or even being annoyed on the inside doesn't fulfill what's being talked about here. But the second thing I want you to notice is that it says, don't be grudging why. For this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you uh, undertake. Effectively, what Moses says here is lending to those in need is good economic sense. He says, if you do this, God will increase your harvest, take care of your needs, okay? Proverbs puts it this way, he says, he who lends to the poor lends to God, okay? That's a pretty good cosigner on the loan. And so Moses knows here not just to convict them with guilt, but remind them of the promises of the covenant, that keeping the covenant for Israel was going to lead to an abundance of economic blessing, like we'll see in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when all the blessings are laid out. This is part and parcel of what it means to be the people of Israel. Verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Okay, and so this is a significant issue, and as I mentioned, it's a significant one for the prophets. In fact, real quickly before we move on, uh, let's look at what, it, uh, what the prophet Amos says in Amos chapter 2, just by way of example. We could also look at Isaiah 5 um, or almost any of the minor prophets if you just point with your finger. These issues are significant. Just a side note while you're turning there, uh, the prophets especially the written prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Jonah, they really primarily have two roles. One is to call Israel back to the covenant. And so it's heavily built on the book of Deuteronomy, reminding them of the things that we're learning about tonight. The second thing is to point forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ. Those are the two messages, return and he's coming. And they culminate, if you follow as you read through, both of those things grow uh, to kind of a climax in John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's two messages are, repent because he's here, right? So everyone else has said, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. When he comes, he will be like this. It's a little bit more like this. Details are added, the picture becomes clearer, and then John says, he's here. But that message is still the same. The axe is laid at the root of the tree, John says. Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. That's the prophetic ministry. But listen to the words of Amos here in Amos chapter 2. Specifically in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. Remember that collateral I mentioned? And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Okay. Now, clearly, one thing on this list involves traditional right-wing morality. A man and his daughter take the same girl. But the rest on the list all have to do with how the poor are taken care of or taken advantage of. Okay? Six of the seven points that Amos makes here, of the three transgressions and of four, involve this idea of how the poor are treated. The Bible makes very clear, not just for Israel, but as a gauge for all the nations, They will be judged specifically for how they treat the least and the weakest. We don't always notice this, but in Jesus' parable of the king who separates the sheep and the goats, it says that in those days the king will call the nations to him and separate them into two groups. And how does he separate them? You, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Therefore, enter into the joy that was prepared before you. And they'll say, but when did we see you in these things? And he says, as much as you did to the least of these, your brethren, you did unto me. It's possible there that by referencing the nations, he's not talking about the nations as an ambiguous term for all people, but actually individual nations, okay? That lines up with how the prophets speak, not only to the people of Israel, the primary complaint that the prophets make about Israel is idolatry, and that idolatry bleeds into every other uh, character, but the primary complaint the Bible makes against Edom, Nineveh, the nations around Israel, almost always has to do with economics. Okay, God cares about these things. Let's finish off chapter 15. Verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years and the seventh years you shall let him go free from you. So notice here that we're talking about service or maybe even slavery, but of a very specific type. If we were to give this a title that we'd understand indentured servitude, okay? This is not chattel slavery. In fact, a limitation is set on it. The most that an individual can obliterate their debts by becoming your employee, becoming your servant, at most six years. In the seventh year, you have to set them free. There's no economic debt so great that you owe them the rest of your life. There's no understanding here of uh, a servanthood or a slavery that is perpetual, let alone racial or passed on to your children, But it did open the way if your debts became too much for you to pay, for you to sell yourself into service. And here that's what it's talking about and it sets these limitations. He will serve you for six years and in the seventh year you shall let him go free. Listen to this in verse 13. When you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor and out of your winepress. As the Lord God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So at the end of this six years, you send him out with enough to start fresh. Basically, you don't just give him his freedom in title, you enable his freedom economically. You give him enough to get going again, to get started again on his own. Okay. Now, once again, what we see here is a concern... For the fate of the debtor, even at the expense of the creditor. Now, that's not to say that the creditor wouldn't benefit from six years of devoted labor. In fact, it'll point out later that this is right, that you should pay him because it's worth so much. But the emphasis here is that when someone is in debt, it's not okay to make a living off of their debt. It's not okay to profit from their debt. If the Old Testament has anything to say of modern significance, it's that, that there's a wickedness to the payday loan places. These people who are getting wealthy, driving the poverty of others, taking advantage of the poverty of others, okay? And so there's a participation in setting them free, not just a limitation on the time they serve, but enabling them to start fresh. Why? Notice what it says halfway through verse 14, as the Lord God has blessed you, you should give to him. Now that's a thinly veiled reference to the origin of Israel. Israel knows what it's like to be servants. And do you remember what God did for Israel when they left Egypt? he put grace upon the hearts of the Egyptians so that they gave them all of these jewels and wealth and they didn't leave Egypt empty-handed. That's what Moses is referencing here. And he says, so when you set free a servant, do it with lavish, um, uh, lavish furnishing." verse 15 he unpacks this you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you therefore I command you to this today but if he says to you I will not go out from you because he loves you in your household since he is well off with you now that says another thing about the ideal of this indentured servitude the right way to handle this is for them to have such a good life in your employ they don't want to leave it after six years They actually go, you know what, it is good economic sense, it's good for my livelihood and my family to stay with you. And so an option is made for that. If he wants to go, send him off and send him off full, you know, his arms full of things. But if he wants to stay. Now notice what it doesn't say here. If you want him to stay, right? The idea here, the emphasis is on the motivation of the person who has been fulfilling his debt, But if he wants to stay, verse 17, you shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you for at half the cost of a hired servant, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Once again, he appeals to economic sense and he says, I'm not asking more of you than than it's appropriate. If you have a servant who's indentured to you for six years, you've basically gotten half price labor. It's appropriate for you to take care of him in such a way. Verse 19, all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and your flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. Now that seems like a hard shift. And we go, wait, we were talking about debts and servants and people, and now we're talking about Sacrifices? But notice the connection here as he continues. He says, you shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You see, Israel had to bring all the firstborns of their herd and offer them to God, or they had to financially redeem them and give that money to God. But they were supposed to do so at the major festivals. Okay, now just a side note about sheep almost always the best wool you can get off a sheep is in the first year of a lamb's life. So imagine you've just gotten back from Jerusalem's festivals, and a new sheep is born. And you go, hmm, I'll take this to the Lord in a year's time, but in the meantime, I can make a profit, okay? Say you have a brand new calf, and he's strong and robust, and you go, well, I can work him in the field for now and then I'll take him. God says, no, 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 no. If it's the firstborn, you're not to get any economic benefit from it. Even in the meantime, while you're taking care of it, all the firstborns are to be solely the property of God. Now we can see why these two fit together because they have to do, uh, they have to do with overworking what belongs to God both in his firstborn, but remember that Israel is also the firstborn people of God. You see, if we were to broaden out the perspective on why God cares for the poor, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two, when it says that in the image of God, he created mankind, both male and female, okay? All people, all human life has significant value to God because they were created by God to reflect His image. They have inherent dignity. And God takes that seriously. And so there's this comparison made here, almost to draw out this principle with the firstborn. Now, verse 20 You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year at the place the Lord will choose. So even this firstborn offering was not like the burnt offering completely consumed on the altar. It was actually eaten with the priest and your family in celebration, in worship of God's provision. But, verse 21, if it has any blemish, if it's lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You'll eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or deer. Only you shall not eat its blood and you shall pour out on the ground like water. Most of those things we've touched on before, but I do want to just point out one emphasis here. Uh, And that's that when we're talking about the firstborn, that would be of any given female animal in your flock, but only of the clean animals, the sacrificial animals, for the most part, cows, goats, and sheep, and only if they were without blemish, okay? Scholars believe then we're talking about 15%, 15% of the animals that are born any given year, Just, just so you know. Um, how these numbers turn out, let's move on to chapter sixteen. Now, as we mentioned, another part of the Sabbath has to do has to do with the high holidays of Israel and so here it brings up three of them, and what these three have in common, Passover, and then the following week, which is called uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of Weeks, which we know as Pentecost, and then the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or the Harvest Feast or sometimes the Great Feast. These three feasts, what they have in common and why they're being talked about here in Deuteronomy is their pilgrimage feasts. Okay. They were to be attended in Jerusalem by every adult male. Now, their women and their servants and even foreigners who were in their town are all invited But the adult men are required three times a year to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Why do we have this in the book of Deuteronomy? Because it's not really a pilgrimage right here for Israel to celebrate Passover, right? Because they all live right around the tabernacle. But as they settle into the land and as they spread out, the temple or the tabernacle is going to be in one place. And so three times a year, they're to travel to that one place. They would pay their first fruits then. They would also celebrate these three major feasts. Chapter 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep Passover to the Lord your God. In the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Now, Abib, or later it's called Nisan, is the first month of Israel's year. And it's basically right now. March-April is what we're talking about. Remember, we're dealing with a lunar calendar, so it doesn't line up exactly with our modern months, but March-April is the month of Abib, and so annually, in that time, uh, they are to remember the Passover. So verse 2, you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd. Side note, that's an update. When it was the days of the Exodus, both the original Passover in Egypt and also the one they celebrate in the wilderness, it was just a sheep from the flock. But now, especially because of the two and a half tribes and the conquering of, God, or of, um, of these two kings, uh, Sihon and Og, outside of the land, they now have cattle. And so the recipe is expanded, if you will. But nonetheless, they're to choose uh, one there and they're to... Eat it where the Lord chooses to make his name dwell. Look at verse two. At the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there, you'll eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. And so this first and primary holiday is is designed for them to reflect on their redemption. They observe it every year to remember their salvation. In some ways, it's comparable to what we do in Good Friday. Okay. Annually, we remember a particular Friday in history where God brought about, at great cost to himself, salvation. And so Israel was to travel for this eight-day festival, Passover and the Feast of uh, uh, Unleavened Bread uh, every year. And so verse 4 No leaven shall be seen within all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice with any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. You'll cook it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning, you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days, you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So that's the first one in the month of Abib, beginning their year. The next one is the Feast of Weeks, verse 9. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Now you can't really tell from this verse, but that day when you start to harvest the grain is also the day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, and so there's Passover seven days; it's all a festival, do no work, and then the fe- then the harvest starts. And so technically, Pentecost is exactly uh, uh, nine weeks. Is that right? Uh, yeah, uh, or Penta meaning fifty fifty days after unleavened bread okay and so then verse 10 they return to Israel and they keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you okay and so this is a celebration of the harvest that was just mentioned they come and they bring freely a free will offering to thank God for the blessings he's given Verse 11, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levites who within, within your town, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are among you, at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Even here, notice the emphasis on economic inclusiveness. This festival is to be something that is a pleasure and a joy to everybody, even the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, those who are the least and the most likely to be taken advantage of. The Sabbath always has this idea in it. Verse 12, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you should be careful to observe these statutes. And then the final festival is six months later in the seventh month. And that's the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, verse 13. You should keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you've gathered the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, okay? Now, we already talked about the the wheat uh, harvest. This has to do with the grape harvest and the um, preserving of grains for winter, effectively, Okay, and so this is the last big push, what we would call a harvest festival or a harvest party. I grew up in Yakima, so I can still remember my very first year of high school, where there were other schools in my area that took a week off for the harvesting of apples. Okay, because it was a big deal. It's that type of season that we're talking about. But <laughs> notice, um, notice verse fifteen. Uh, 14 You'll rejoice in your feast, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, Levite, sojourner, fatherless, and widow who within your towns. For seven days you'll keep to the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose because the Lord God will bless you in all produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be all together joyful. So once again, a national time of celebration. And then we get a summary in verse 16. Three times a year... Your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So now we start to transition in the passage again, and if this suggestion that the Decalogue provides the table of contents for the book is correct... Then the next commandment is the fourth command, to honor your father and mother. Now, fathers and mothers aren't mentioned in the next few chapters, but what are our positions of authority? And so the argument goes that your father and mother represent all forms of authority in the Decalogue. And so really, the call to honor your father and mother is also a call to honor those who are in positions of government, to honor those who are at the local level and at the national level leaders, uh, that there is effectively an understanding that our first encounter with government is parental. And so they stand in as a representation. And so we'll see here, (coughs) he's going to talk primarily about four different types of leaders in Israel. The judge, the king, the priest, and the prophet, okay? Verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Notice where it begins. It doesn't begin at the top with the king. It begins at the local level with appointed judges that are the effectively the elders of the tribe. Okay, and so there's to be uh, the uh, family heads as representatives acting as judges at the local level. It's worth remembering here that Israel in this day is um, pre-information technology, right? And so any given town in Israel would be relatively isolated by distance from other towns and even larger cities and especially Jerusalem. And so they needed to be able to be self-governing. And so they did that through the elders and the judges. Now, what's put here is not so much the job description of these elders or judges or how they're selected, but how they are to behave. Verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous, okay? And so the first thing they're told is what they can't do. And what they can't do is take advantage of their position, okay? They can't show partiality to people they don't like. They can't pervert justice for whatever their own intentions. They can't accept a bribe. Their goal is, look at verse 20, justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now this is a side note, another thing that the prophets greatly criticize, that the elders, the shepherds, and the judges of Israel take advantage of people and instead of doing justice, make profits once again over the same underrepresented folks, the widow, the foreigner, the orphan, etc. Um, but the emphasis here is that they are to be just, if you've ever encountered that really odd Psalm, Psalm 110, the one that Jesus quotes in the Gospel of John, when he's criticized for claiming himself to be God, and he says, but doesn't your own words say, I say you are God's? And if you're reading that for the first time in the Gospel of John, you're like, what? But if you go back and read the Psalm, it's talking about these people Who are standing in as the authority of life or death in God's place. And so the climax of that psalm says, I say you are gods, but you will die like men. It's a a reminder of the fact that they will be held accountable and responsible for their judgment, okay? And so Jesus goes on in that passage just to close it off, and he says, how much more is it appropriate for me to take the title? because he's not just standing in the place of God. He is God himself, okay? So getting back to Deuteronomy. Now, here in verse 21, um, there's another warning about false forms of worship. Verse 21, "'You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah "'besides the altar of the Lord your God uh, "'that you shall make, "'and you shall not set up a pillar "'which the Lord your God hates.'" Continuing into 17, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish or a defect, whatever for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what's evil in sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and he's gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it's told to you and you hear of it, Okay, now here's why I wanted to read that far. Once again, when we get to verse 21, it seems off topic. We have this establishing of judges and a call for them to be righteous, and then suddenly there's warnings again about idolatry. But it's really just a test case for the judges. And so it presents, if this is happening in Israel, this is what the elders and the judges are to do. When it says... uh, um, You must inquire here. It's talking to the elders, not the average Israelite. And so notice what it says in verse three. If he's gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it's told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it's true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates the man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Okay and so these judges these elders exist to carry out the law of Israel and so a test case is given here but notice there's a lot of restrictions there to make a full inquiry In fact, we see here that the evidence of a single witness is not enough to condemn someone to death. Verse six, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, okay? And so there's restraints primarily set on the judges. What we read about here is not the privileges of the judges, right? We don't hear about their paycheck or their pension, We don't hear about their power uh, that they wield. Instead, there's a warning against them taking advantage of their office and then restrictions so that they do a good job. And then it finishes in verse seven and says, the hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you'll purge the evil from your midst. And so the eyewitness who testifies has to throw the first stone and then the rest of the community has to participate as well. That way, it's the community carrying out the sentence, but the weight is put heavily on the eyewitness. Why? Because if it was discovered that his witness was false, he's now committed murder, okay? Perjury is a big deal in Israel because in this case, in high cases, it involves the life of another person. And so, you can imagine the significance of having to demonstrate the <coughs> authenticity of your eyewitness by actually being the one to start the death sentence by participating in this way. It'd be in the modern world like if the, the leading, the star witness of a case was the one who had to throw the lever in the electrocution chair. It's a significant weight to bear. In fact, we understand this, don't we? That's why, uh, that's why the um, death by firing squad was such a valuable way of putting people to death because you've got a line of blanks and only one loaded gun, okay? That way nobody has to bear the psychological weight of taking a life because they don't know who actually finished him off, okay? Verse eight, if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another or a legal right or another or one kind of assault or another or any case within your town that's too difficult for you, you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose, in other words, there's a process of appeal and a supreme court that's being recognized here. If at the local level, they can't seem to determine if the death was accidental or intentional, right? Remember we learned about that a few weeks ago, the difference between, between um, murder and manslaughter, if you will. If they can't piece it together, then they're to go to, we'll just say Jerusalem for shorthand, where the temple is and to this higher court. Verse nine, you shall come to the Levitical priest's And to judge who is office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you your decision. Now, notice here, they take him to the priesthood, and then it says, and he who is in office. That's probably not a Supreme Court judge, it's probably the high priest, okay? And so we see here that the priests have a role in the legislation uh, or in the justice system of Israel as the final court of appeal, and that includes the high priest, Now, it's worth pointing out that the high priest has the Urim and the Thummim, right? This this thing made available to Israel so that they could consult God directly. But nonetheless, they operate as the supreme court. Verse 10, you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You'll not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. Okay, so they're not getting a second opinion. They're getting a final verdict. Verse 12, the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. So first, it talks about the judges and the elders, and I did want to just move to the book of Job to show you how this worked out, okay? So very quickly, turn to Job chapter 29. (coughs) Now, much of Job is, um, much of the book of Job is this man, Job, trying to defend his character to his so-called friends, His friends are convinced the reason why his life has gone sideways is because God is terribly upset with him because he's such an evil person. And so their idea is really simple. It's, look, Job, just repent. Just stop all of these hidden horrible things that you're obviously doing. And so Job is forced to make a stand and say, but that's not who I am at all. And in doing so, like I said, he paints a picture of the ideal Israelite and specifically one who is chosen and operates as an elder in the gates, as one of these judges. Notice what it says in verse 12. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessings of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. And so what we see here is that the elders were to do justice and only justice, like it says in Deuteronomy. And Job said that was his role, that he sat in the gates and oversaw these cases and pursued justice where injustice had been done. So that's the judges, and it's the primary place of, um, of leadership in Israel at the local level. But it moves on next, and it talks about the king. Now, as it does so, I want you to notice um, that a king here is seen not as inevitable or expected. Moses doesn't say here, as soon as you get into the land, appoint a king. He says, if you appoint a king. That's significant, but read with me in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations all all around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Now, when you finally come to the first king of Israel, this man Saul, this is actually exactly how it plays out. Israel comes to Samuel and they go, Samuel, you're getting really old and your kids are no good. We don't want them ruling over us as judges. We want a king like the other nations. It plays out just this way. Now, Moses says here, you can do that. But God's response in the book of Samuel is upset. And he says, Samuel, stop bumming. They're not rebelling against you. They're rebelling against me. And so there's this big uh, theophany storm that scares Israel. And he goes, you can have a king, But I'm warning you, it's not going to go so great. And so it's strange here that in Deuteronomy we have legislation for this king that it appears that God doesn't want. But if you go back into the book of Genesis, God has already promised that kings would be in the line of Abraham. If you go to Genesis 49, it's already promised that eventually a king will come out of the tribe of Judah. If you read the prophecies of Balaam, he talks about the fact that there is royalty that's going to come out of Israel. And here it's legislated in the book of Deuteronomy. God's reaction has to do, I think it's best explained, with that phrase, we want a king like the other nations. Now there's a totally normal and neutral version of that that just says they have a king, we want a king. But we need to remember what a king was in the days of Israel. Okay? First off, there's not a nation around Israel that was kingless. That's why we read about the five kings of the Battle of Sodom and Gomorrah, omar and these guys, King Og and King Sihon, right? Uh, there was Pharaoh in Egypt. Monarchy was the only game out there governmentally. At this point in Israel's history, they're unique in the fact that they don't have that head. But what was a king in those days? A king was the one who fought for the people. A king was the great benefactor of the people. The king was the head, and Israel was to be something different. In a sense, God was to be their king. That's why God says, they haven't rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. Okay? And I'll just point out that even in those days when Samuel is operating, God has already been preparing a king for Israel, but it's not Saul, it's David. Read the book of Ruth. You see, David's great great grandfather, Boaz, can't find a woman. In the book of Ruth, God sovereignly takes care of that by bringing this Moabitess, Ruth, to this bachelor, Boaz, and she is the great great grandmother of King David. God was doing that during the times of the judges, it says in Ruth chapter 1. Why is that significant? Because what's the repeated refrain in the book of Judges? Now, in those days, Everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel. God is preparing and providing and moving towards a king, but Israel, both in their impatience and in their really wanting the right thing for the wrong reasons, get exactly what they want. We want a king like the other nations, bam, Saul is a perfect fit. Saul is a man after man's own heart. It's not until David that we get a man after God's own heart. And so, it's the plan. But even here, Moses seems to hint at the way it's going to go. He says, when you come asking, here's what he says. He says, verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, that's requirement number one. One from among your brothers, that's requirement number two, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only... Once again, what we see here are not the privileges of the office of the king, but the restrictions. When God sets a king over you, he must be an Israelite. He must be one of your brothers. He must be the one God chooses. And then, verse 16, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you'll never return that way again. So, what's the first thing he's not to do? To acquire a bunch of horses. Now, remember what that means in Israel's day. It means weapons. Okay? Horses means chariots. Horses means cavalry. Horses are the primary one upmanship in warfare. Okay? But Israel, if they're going to have a king, he's not to amass his weaponry. Okay? He's not to stockpile nukes. And the reason we find is because. All the other nations trust in horses, but Israel is to trust in the living God. God is their warrior, not the stockpile of the king. So the king is not allowed to stockpile. And then there's another thing he's not to collect. Uh, Verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Okay, so not multiply horses and now not multiply wives. One of the privileges of being king in the ancient Near East was having multiple wives and having the wealth to support multiple wives, but not for the king of Israel. And then finally, verse um, 17 finishes and says, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Wealth, not multiply horses, not multiply wives, not multiply wealth. One of the commentators put it very well when he said, well, then what's the point of being king? Okay. The idea here is that the office of king for Israel is not a place of acquiring status and privilege and power. It's a place of service. In fact, one of the things I love, and I don't know if this was true of other nations, but it's definitely true of David. The king in those days was not sitting in a bunker in the time of war, away from the battle, calling the shots from the war room. He was on the front lines of the battle fighting for his people. It's a very different thing than we generally think of uh, with governmental leadership. Um, But the king was to be a servant. And on top of that, notice verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And so every king was to sit down and handwrite the first five books of the Bible okay, what we call the Pentateuch. Verse 19, it, he'll be with him and he'll read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so he's to know the law, he's to read and to meditate on the law, and he's to be the voice and the enforcer of the law. He's to rule for God. Now, unfortunately, we read over this and then we read the story of David's son Solomon and he does everything wrong, okay? Solomon is uh, the one who builds huge stables and collects horses, And multiplies wealth so much that silver in Israel is regarded like cobblestone, okay? And he's the one who loves many foreign women. And what happens? Just like he warns here in Deuteronomy, it turns his heart away from the Lord. And it says here that if he were to read the law and meditate on it and righteously rule for God, he will continue long in his kingdom and Israel, his children, will continue long in the land, and what you, ha- what you see in the monarchy is uh, after Saul, you have David and then Solomon and then this split. And it's basically falling down the stairs of just what's warned here. It's amazing, amazing how much Deuteronomy applies directly to the history of Israel in the negative sense. But it's all laid out right here. Before there was a king of Israel, there was a warning for the king of Israel. And unfortunately, it goes unheeded let's finish off chapter 18 so we've looked at the judges at the local level and the king at the national level now we're going to look at the religious leaders the priests and the prophet verse one the levitical priests all the tribes of levi shall have no portion or inheritance with israel they shall eat the lord's food offerings as their inheritance they'll have no inheritance among their brothers the lord is their inheritance as he promised them and this shall be the priest's due from the people from the offering a sacrifice whether it's an ox or a sheep they shall give to the priest the shoulder and two cheeks and the stomach the first fruit of your grain and your wine and your oil and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him and so he's provided for broadly not just in foodstuffs but also we see here in wool that'd be for clothing and for blankets and the like um Verse 5, why, for the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of your Lord, him and his sons for all time. So the priests are not to be neglected because they exist to serve Israel and serve God on Israel's behalf. When we ask what did the Levites do, there's a few things, okay? They were the ones who ministered at the tabernacle, and took care of the sacrifices, but they were also scattered in c- cities all around Israel and they were the primary teachers of the law of Israel, okay? So they were the, the scribes, the, the legal authorities who knew front to back, cover to cover the, the law is, that we're reading here and taught it to the people. You can see this playing out, by the way, in the book of Nehemiah when Ezra, A Levite shows up and reads of the law to the people congregated together. He's operating in his role as teacher of Israel. And so it says here that they're to be supported by the Israelites. Now, it's worth remembering that in the New Testament, we don't have a priesthood. The New Testament talks about our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and the priesthood of all believers, that we are, like Israel was, a nation of priests. And so you can't make a one-to-one comparison between Levites and pastors. But the principle of supporting those who labor in the gospel, who teach in the church, is maintained in the New Testament. And so Paul says, um, let elders who rue well be worthy of honor, uh, especially those who labor in teaching. He says that in the same way the Old Testament says not to muzzle an ox, in the same way that Jesus in the Gospel of Luke says, Uh, that a laborer is worthy of his wages, so those who work at ministering the gospel should make a living by the gospel, okay? The recognition here is that it is appropriate to free up those whom God chooses for ministry so that they can focus on the task at hand to the benefit of the people of God. And so there is a comparison here, but we gotta be careful of making the leap. There's a lot of things that as a pastor, I am not like a Levite or a priest, okay? You do not need me to operate as mediator, to pray for you, to make sacrifices for you. Now, I'll say very clearly, as Samuel does, woe to me if I do not pray for you. I have that role, but you don't need me. You have Jesus. You can go directly into the throne room of God. But there is a significant principle that the New Testament maintains uh, that we should support those who labor in the gospel, because they labor on our behalf. Verse six, and if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, he may come when he desires to the place the Lord will choose and minister in the name of the Lord your God, like all his fellow Levites who stand and minister there before the Lord. Then he may have equal portions to eat beside what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. So if a Levite wants to leave behind his place in the Levitical city and move to what will be Jerusalem and serve there, he's welcome to do so, okay? All Levites have that option. Now, once again, when we get to verse 9, it seems off topic and it's going to talk about all these things Israel should not do, but it's doing that in preparation to talk about the prophet. And I bet as we read it, you can guess why. Look at verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of the nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever who does these things is an abomination of the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you're about to dispossess listen to fortune tellers and diviners but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Effectively here, all of these practices involve discerning the future, knowing what to do or what not to do, right? You go to a fortune teller to get effectively spiritual advice. God says it's not gonna be like that in Israel. God's going to instead bring up prophets. You see the contrast between those two things? And so all of these things are to have no place in the life of the nation of Israel. Instead, God is going to continue to speak to the people of Israel, continue to lead them. And so we get to the final kind of piece of Israel's authority structure, the prophet. Verse 15, the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it's to him you shall listen do you hear that contrast there don't listen to the soothsayers listen to the prophet that god raises up okay verse 16 just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. Back at Mount Sinai, they heard the voice of the Lord and they said, we'd rather you be an interim. God can speak to you and then you can speak to us. And he says, this ministry that you've asked for, God will graciously continue after I die. Verse 17. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, I want you to notice what that says here. It says that there will be people who God chooses who speak for God. And you see this really clearly in the prophets. What is the introductory statement of the prophets over and over again? Thus says the Lord, right? a prophet is a person who speaks the word of God. And so here we find that that's not ending with Moses. It's not ending with the revelation that's written down in the Pentateuch, but it will continue. Verse 19, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name or that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So there's also a warning here about false prophets. And if you continue to read the Old Testament, that becomes a significant problem. Any awful wicked king has an army of prophets to just give a thumbs up to his protocol and say, yeah, this is what the Lord wants to do. And so we find these battles between the prophets and the false prophets. And so here they're given a litmus test for false prophets. One is, they speak for other gods. In other words, he says, look, you know who I am well enough to know. You know that you are to worship the Lord your God, only in him you shall serve. Uh, so if he speaks in another name, he's not of me. And then he continues in verse 21, if you say in your heart, how will we know the words the Lord has not spoken? Okay, They recognize, okay, there's a significant accountability to being obedient to the word of God through the prophet. What if one comes and claims how we're going to know the difference? And he gives this test, verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. So what does he say here? He says, the prophets that I will send will rightly predict things to demonstrate the validity of their office. Now, this explains a feature that you can sometimes miss in the prophetic books of the Bible. It doesn't matter if you look at Daniel or Zechariah or Isaiah or Ezekiel. I could keep going, but those are four really good examples. You will find that the prophecies in the first part of the book all involve things that came to pass in the life of the prophet and that the prophecies that look way beyond, sometimes hundreds if not thousands of years into the future, follow at the end of the book. They're properly arranged that way so that in reading them, you can effectively read it with a modern newspaper and go, okay, check, 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 check. And then you know that all of these things where they look way down the pike are truly the word of God. Okay? That's why Daniel begins with things that involve uh, uh, the... Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. Remember, he lives through both of those reigns. And then he starts to speak beyond of Antiochus Epiphanes, which is hundreds of years after Daniel. Speak beyond of the fourth kingdom that is to come, which is hundreds of years after Daniel. Speak of the end of all things when the Ancient of Days on the throne gives his power to the one like the Son of Man. That's all at the end of the book, okay? You'll see the same thing in Zechariah. You'll find the same thing in Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies about the coming destruction of Israel as they're taken into Babylon, and then suddenly you hit Isaiah 53, and he starts to look way beyond that to the coming Messiah and his crucifixion. But they're organized that way intentionally because of this rule right here, okay? God promised that those he would send would speak of things that would be soon to pass, and you would observe him and go, okay, he's the real deal, okay? Okay? Now, notice here it says that if it doesn't come to pass, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him, okay? And so, let's just recognize that it's very convenient to claim that God told you something, okay? In fact, I've had people come up to me and says, say things like, God told me that, and then tell me what's going to come to pass. Not all of those things are pleasant, And some of them conveniently come from people who are really upset with me, right? But I don't have to have any fear in that. I don't have to have any concern about that. But God does promise a continuing aspect of revelation of those who would speak for him. Now, here's what's really interesting. Clearly, when Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me, we can think of Samuel. We can think of Isaiah and Elijah and these types of people. But those after the days of the return of Israel, so the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, for example, they started to read this in a new light and go, well, yeah, there's a prophetic ministry, but maybe we're still waiting for the prophet like Moses, because that is one of the things he says, a prophet like me. Now, Moses stands apart from all sorts of people throughout the Old Testament. Listen to what it says in Numbers 12, 18. Okay, so this is where Miriam and Aaron, Moses' family, oppose Moses and go, hey, look, we got the same blood flowing through our veins. God uses us and speaks to us too. And we'd like a little bit more authority and respect in the camp. And God comes to Moses' defense. Listen to what he says here. In verse 18 of chapter 12 in Numbers, he says, "Mm. Uh, sorry verse 8 verse 6 he said hear my words if there's a prophet among you I the Lord make myself known to him in a vision I speak with him in a dream now that actually lines up with what we read in the later written prophets Isaiah will say and I saw the word of the Lord okay it came to him in a vision in a dream they see these things But notice he continues here in verse seven, not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And so here in the book of Numbers, it says what makes Moses different from other prophets is it's not visions and dreams, but a face-to-face direct revelation communication. And so the Israelites in their later history read this passage in Deuteronomy 18 and began to not speak of the prophets, but the prophet, the one that the, who would come, who would be like Moses, who knew God intimately and spoke face to face with God. If you look at the Old Testament, you see that they were anticipating uh, the coming priest. Read the book of, uh, of Zechariah. They were anticipating the coming king Remember what it says in 1 Samuel 7 that David, one of your descendants, will rule eternally? And they were awaiting the coming prophet, okay? All of which were bound up in this Messiah. And you can see this belief in the Gospels. When Jesus comes to the disciples and they say, who do people say that I am? They go, well, some of, you, some of them say you're the prophet. That's what they're talking about, Deuteronomy chapter 18, okay? And they were right, okay? Jesus is the greater than Moses, a prophet greater than Moses who speaks with God face to face, as John puts it in the gospel of John chapter one, he who is from the very bosom of the father has come to make him known. He who knows him intimately. That's why Jesus says, only I know the father and anyone who the father chooses to reveal himself to. He's the access point to knowing God because he knows him intimately. He is the one that Moses promises here. In fact, just to close, listen to this from the book of Acts chapter 3. Of course, this is in the early church after the days of the resurrection. Here, Peter is preaching again to the crowds after he's just healed this lame man. I want to get the reference right. Notice what he says in verse 22. Uh, Verse 21 for context. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter points back to these prophets we've been talking about. Notice what he says, verse 22. Moses said, quote, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth being blessed. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He says, as Moses and all of the prophets pointed to, he's come. The prophet, the priest, the king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word tonight. And although our government functions differently as a representative democracy, uh, we can't necessarily make a one-to-one comparison between local judges and elders and kings and priests and prophets and the way that government works for us today. But we do know that the New Testament calls us to respect those in positions of authority to pray for those in positions of authority um, and to recognize that the government does not wield the sword in vain. But even when we look at the Old Testament, Lord, you raise up prophets to call your government in Israel, your kings and your judges and even your priests to account. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us as a church that balance, maintaining that prophetic role to our culture and reminding them that they will be held accountable for the way that they hold their authority, and whether they do righteously, justice, only justice, and also recognizing that government as an entity is a God-given position of authority. We thank you for your word tonight. We ask that you would continue to drill it deep into our hearts, We know that when the King of Israel was called to meditate on and to live in this word, he was really just a representative of the people. And I pray, Lord, that we would be the same, that we would take your word, that we would chew on it, that we would walk in it, that we would seek to apply it to our lives, uh, and that we would be able to testify like the psalmist in Psalm 119. Your statutes are good. They're sweet to the taste. They are the light that gives a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken. I pray that we would hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, have a good night.